0: Parents, as we develop our relationship together with you here listening to Beyond Risk and Back, um, you're going to find me repeating over and over a certain mantra. In our parents' weekend at Fire Mountain, we hammer this mantra into your head over and over and over. And until I was able to embrace this mantra and truly and personally do it, the work that I was doing was killing me. And... That's what today's episode is about. I have had the fortune to come across a man named Stephen Kovalkovich, and I'm going to let him tell you his story, what he does for a living. But this guy has said something to me that has rocked my world. And parents, you're not going to want to hear this. Therapists, you're not going to want to hear this. And teachers, you're going to know this, and you're not going to want to hear this. And he told me that there was a part in his relationship where his parents were enabling him to death and killing themselves in the process and that is such a powerful statement for today's show because my guest steven his podcast is rescue the rescuer and this man his mission is about helping those who help others today's show i'm titling ground zero and rock bottom I am a teacher, teen, and parent coach, internationally known trainer. I own and run a residential treatment center for teens. And best of all, I am a happy father, stepfather, and husband. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Risk and Back, brought to you by Mental Health News Radio and Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center. I am your host, Aaron Huey. Beyond Risk and Back is designed for parents, clinicians, and teachers looking for support to guide the teens they care for to move forward from risky behaviors into real freedom and responsibility. Now, let's help each other get these kids back from Beyond Risk. My guest is Stephen Kavalkovich Stephen, hello.
1: Hey there. How you doing, Aaron? It's a Pleasure and an honor to be on your
0: show. It really
1: is. Thanks I, uh, thank for
0: having you. me. It's my pleasure and it's my honor. Thank you very much. Thank you for your years of service and thank you for coming out the other side of uh, those years of service. A better man for it. I, I know the darkness and I know what it's like to come out the other side and have to live with that darkness in the past. Ladies and gentlemen, Stephen was a paramedic. My term ground zero was not a euphemism. Stephen was present at 9/11 at ground zero, but his story is so much deeper than. Uh, just being there in that space, in that time, in those m- horrific moments. Uh, the story started before that and uh, continued on after. And I'm gonna let Stephen bring it up, and then we'll get into why Stephen and I are talking and why that's gonna matter for parents, teachers, and clinicians. Stephen, what the hell happened, man? What what, what was going on with you? How did this all start? How did it all end?
1: Well, I'll give you the I'll try to give you the abridged version because I really, really think it's important to. Uh get to the actual, um, to the solution stuff for the families, and for the for the clinicians, for the therapists, for the teachers. Um, and also my story, I, I shared very candidly and in a very raw way on my podcast, which, you know, we'll get to that at the end of the show. We can share where that's located. But the short answer really is, I grew up in South Jersey, and I was a twin. I was actually a triplet, the last of three boys. Unfortunately, we lost the middle one at birth. And for some reason, and I don't know where it came from, I always Thought that I was the crap left over when I was, a, you know, when I was a real little kid. I don't know why I thought that. I just always felt that I was different. I wasn't a typical boy. I didn't like sports. I didn't like to get dirty. I just wasn't a boy's boy. I, I was. Yeah, I mean, I I'll guess I guess I could say I was a more, you know, I had more of a of a stronger feminine side as a male. And I grew up learning that that wasn't okay. That uh, there was something weird about me because. I wasn't into typical boy things. I, I preferred theater. I preferred watching old episodes of I Love Lucy or Golden Girls with my mom. Like, I just was, the, I was just different like that. And I really learned young that it wasn't okay. Or at least I thought it was. I was the first with glasses. I had acne. I was tiny. I was puny. I was, you know, I wasn't popular. I didn't know how to dress. I started losing my hair when I was, you know, a teenager. So, like, I had all those social awkward issues i had all of them and i remember and there were some poignant moments that happened very very important moments i think that i need to mention when i was 14 years old i went to a new school and i got hooked up with a boy by the guidance counselor to be kind of like a buddy and he brought me to a youth group like a christian organization kind of thing he was a you know he wore jesus t-shirts and carried a bible and he was weird and he was awkward and we fit pretty well together I didn't really care about the, the Jesus part at the time, but I I sure liked the fact that somebody had like kind of accepted me because I always felt like an outsider. So I went to this youth group and there was a very charismatic leader who was like in his twenties. He was funny. He was, he was, entertaining and people like were glued to him and i thought man if i can get that older guy to like me maybe like all these other kids will like. and he did actually he brought me into his circle and i thought i was cool until one day when i was at his house and we were going to go sw- we were going to go to the mall i think with two other guys And they went outside, I think, maybe to smoke a cigarette or something, the two other guys. And he came in the room. He's a lot bigger than me. He came in the room and jumped on top of me and said, we can't leave until I play with you. And I knew he wasn't talking about playing chess or checkers. He was talking about doing something sexually. Fortunately for me, nothing happened further than that. But the other two boys showed up in the house. They walked back in and it ended well you know long story short i wound up telling somebody telling you know telling that kid that brought me there who told his mom who told somebody else wound up at a meeting with this this was a national christian organization they came up from dc like the big administrators and they met with my parents and myself at a church in my town where many years later i would start attending AA and na meetings there so there's some irony right there there's like an omen of the future sure and I, I, and I say that to say, and we will get to it. The fact is, like, when dealing with somebody with addictions or other issues, the addiction is not the problem. It's generally the solution to the underlying problem that, you know, the solution that one uses for the underlying problem. the causes a condition. That's the way to healing, and we'll get to that. So anyways, we went to this meeting. They said they didn't believe me. It didn't happen. And pretty much I felt abandoned. I felt alone. I felt embarrassed i felt ashamed i felt guilty like i did something wrong or maybe I, I i misinterpreted even though i know i didn't and all the other kids that liked this guy they thought i was trying to jam them up so everybody else at school shunned me too and this started a real path to trying to figure out what was i going to do like i just wanted to be accepted so I, I would try to hang out with anybody who would bring me in there into their circle About a year later, I got to date a cheerleader, which was really cool because I was that nerdy kid who didn't get cheerleaders, but I did. We dated for like a really long high school relationship lasting about a week, which is about how long they last. And then we broke up. And then we we didn't like each other because you're supposed to do that in high school. So we gossiped about each other and gave each other dirty looks when we'd see each other. And a few months later, I happened to be singing in the choir next to her at a Christmas concert right before the holidays at a church in our town. And they just happened to stand us together. And I remember thinking it was yesterday. Man, I should apologize for the mean things I said about her because it's Christmas time. And you, know, you never know what can happen. But my fear of rejection, my ego, my fear of more abandonment, more guilt, more shame kept me from doing it and I didn't say a word and about an hour later she was killed in a car accident Ugh.
0: and I and
1: yeah and I internalized that. I thought that was my fault even though it certainly wasn't my fault but I took it on and both of those two stories I said a lot of words that are emotions that are feeling they are shame, their guilt, they embarrassment, abandonment. there's a reason for that because no matter what anybody's story is, what their details or their circumstances are, we can all relate to the same types of feelings. And that's the crux of a lot of this. So we'll fast forward a bit because I really don't want to take too too much time with it. Fast forward, I wound up going to Ground Zero. I wound up being a paramedic. I wound up coping with my issues with drugs and alcohol, and gambling, and adultery, and spending. I filed bankruptcy a week before my wedding with forty thousand dollars in credit card debt. I I did every just every we'll say bad thing that you could do because I was always running. I would always get a new car, or I would get new clothes, or I'd get a new job, or I'd get a new house, or a new girlfriend, or a new, you know, when I was married, another new girlfriend, and anything to take me out of myself. I would seek peace and contentment in external things. And I know you you liked when I said this the other day, and I guess, uh, actually, when you listen to my show, I was trying to fill what I call a God-shaped hole that every single one of us, I believe, has. Because... We're inherent, we you know each one of us is born with a fundamental understanding of God or heaven inside of us. That's why when you're in a jackpot or when you're about to hit a tree, you don't yell, Oh, crystal, or Oh, great power of the universe. You say, Oh, God. I think there's a reason for that. It's natural to us because we do have a fundamental belief and understanding. Sometimes we just don't know what it is or how to cultivate it. But I believe it is a God shaped hole because I believe that hole is can only be filled with a spirit and i'm not going to go into if it's jesus or buddha or krishna or whatever that's that's up to you to decide it's not my decision, not my place to tell you what it is but there i believe that we're spiritual beings and we have to recognize that and work on that peace and the peace only comes from within i think about Lately, it's been very big in the news with a lot of large celebrities who have been committing suicide. And as tragic as that is, I don't know these people personally, but I'd be willing to bet that when you look at them and you see that they have seemingly everything. They have the money, the fame, the fortune, the the popularity, the cars, the the boats, the houses, all those things. But you know what they clearly didn't have?
0: Peace. Jim Kerr recently, I didn't, wasn't it him who recently said, I hope you all become rich so that you can discover that that ain't it.
1: I saw that. I actually did see that. And I liked hearing that because I agree with that. And I was someone who had a lot. I had, like I said, I had a career. I was a rescuer. I was a hero, so to speak. I was also a mess.
0: You died twice.
1: I did. I overdosed twice. And both times, they were old paramedic partners that Narcan made. So waking up to that was a humbling experience. I lost my paramedic certification. I drove an ambulance after shooting heroin, and I had a patient in the back. Now, people say it's a choice. You're right. It was a choice. But if somebody sits here and actually tell me that they believe that I planned that out, or that I really, like, when I I was growing up, planned to do that, they're out of their mind. Because I certainly didn't plan that. I take full responsibility for my choices and my actions. That don't get me wrong. But is it really do we, when somebody drowns in the ocean because do we blame them because they got caught up in the undertow?
0: You know, I want to no, want to talk about that for a second because this is a big thing that I get from parents. And you know, as we transition into talking about the burden that caretakers have. You know, I'm talking about parents, therapists, teachers, paramedics, police officers, firefighters, doctors, nurses, you name it. The care the people who care take other people in pain and suffering are burdened with it. And, and that's a harsh word, but I want to talk about this choice thing for a second because I have an infinite number of families. I say infinite because there's been thousands before and be infinite after because this is a common mantra. My kid needs to make better choices. My kid needs to make better choices. And I hear you say that. And, and as a as a product of the of the twelve step rooms and as a product of many years of recovery and personal inventory and development, I think about the choices. That I made. And I don't, I don't agree with that term on a personal basis simply because lizards do not make choices. Lizards survive. And surviving means fight, flight, freeze, faint, fornicate, and feed. Those are the ways we survive. Fight, flight, freeze, faint, fornicate, and feed. And if we're truly making choices, then we're using a different part of our brain. This is science. This is not some wacko idea. The science of conscious decision-making for something along those levels, you know, should I shoot heroin? Should I smoke pot instead of paying my bills? Um, should I cut my arms up because I'm, I'm feeling depressed? We can call, I grab a razor blade and slice my arms up a choice. However, if we're a victim of environment or we're a victim of neurological issues, like low dopamine production, which drives me to search for things that increase my dopamine levels, like cutting. You can call it a choice, but I call it survival. These are things that you were doing to try to survive. And that's one of the things that really strikes me about asking someone to stop and make better choices. When we're dealing with people who are caretakers, who continually sacrifice their own personal health or the personal health of the adult relationships they're having so that they can save a child, you could say to them, hey, you need to make better choices. You need to take care of yourself first and take care of your adult relationships, your marriage, your child-rearing partner second. You're making bad choices choices and they're going to give you the middle finger. And so I want to state the choices, but I get what you're saying. We can take responsibility for what we've done, but I'm hard pressed to call that a choice because I was doing that because dude, when I was sober, I was sad. And when I was high, I was happy. Why the hell would I want to be sad?
1: Well, I have a couple points on that. First of all, if Nancy Reagan was right and just say no works, we wouldn't be having a lot of these conversations, first of all.
0: <laughs> hey, we should we should talk to kids about drugs <laughs> now because uh, then they won't do them. I, I believe that's what our current yeah, administration yeah. is promoting.
1: Yeah, I mean, okay, that's, that's a terrible idea. So there's <laughs> A, there's that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so you've got that, but you also. There's also an aspect that people, I think, kind of ignore, and that's the aspect of muscle memory, if you want to call it that, repetition. There's an aspect of that. Whenever you do something new, whatever it is, if it's going to the gym, if it's learning to play baseball, if it's learning anything, whatever it is, something you did not know or do prior to now, first time you do it, it's awkward, it's uncomfortable, and it might even be painful. But if there's something to be gained from it, like let's say with drugs, okay? We know it's uncomfortable, it's awkward, smoking your first joint, you cough like crazy, or whatever, Might, I, any of those things happen at first, regardless of what your new thing is that you're trying. But if there's some kind of reward there, whatever it is, and let's say it's with drugs, a lot of times it's to numb something, it's to take away a feeling, Opiates do a, a decent job with physical pain, but they do a wonderful job with emotional pain. So if you do something new at first, you have to learn to to do it better. Like I, I liken it to martial arts. I took Kung Fu and Chinese martial arts for a long time. And I'll never forget my teacher saying he got upset with us one night because we we're repeating the same movement over and over and over again. And we're get, we were all like getting frustrated because we wanted to learn how to do the cool stuff. And he said... And it was like the Karate Kid. You ever seen the Karate Kid? Like, Mr. Miyagi taught Daniel to paint a fence, wax a car, sand the floor. It had nothing to do with martial arts. But what he was teaching him was the movement and repeating them over and over and over and over until they became natural. And he didn't have to think about them. Same as driving a stick shift. You drive a stick shift for the first time, and, you don't know, and it's awkward. You don't know how to do it. You, you right. skip and jump across the parking lot. But eventually, like, I drive a stick shift now. I don't think about it. I get in my car and I do it same thing goes with doing something destructive. Yep. doesn't matter if it's non-destructive or destructive. It doesn't matter what it is. And it's breaking a pattern. It's breaking a built-in pathway in your brain that when this happens, I do this. And I don't even have to think about it it just happened.
0: okay so so it's
1: so much deeper than the choice thing
0: that's right so this is this is where this is now my transition point to hook these parents these therapists and these teachers in and what you're talking about in martial arts and for any parents who's ever seen my website you know that that's my other profession 36 years traveling the world teaching and training the samurai called that the mushin which means no mind it means you've understood something enough that you don't think about it anymore and it can certainly serve you when you need to remain conscious in conflict. So here's the dilemma that's presented. And this is why I'm talking to you today, Stephen, because not only do you know this from the side of an addict, but you know this from the side of a rescuer. And every family I work with, every therapist, every teacher I work with is trying to save the life of a teenager at risk. And they have a pattern that they have utilized over and over and they have practiced this same move. They have practiced this same dance over and over and over. And it's worked. They've they've raised kids into teens and they've parented their kids this one way. And now all of a sudden their kid's on dope and they're doing this old stuff and it's not working. And rather than mm-hmm. say, man, I got to change up my move here because I'm getting a left hook when I'm, a, when I'm trained for a right hook, they do it louder. They practice the response louder. Now they're screaming at their kids, but they're still driving up. Now they're lecturing the kids. Now they're saying what you need to understand is and you need to make better choices and on and on and on. And this is where the caretaker burden starts to, starts to develop. And caretaker's burden is the stress which is perceived by a caretaker due to the situation where you're consistently taking care of other people. And your own life starts to suffer. This isn't just for professionals, obviously, this is for parents. And caretaker stress, which has been studied, it's been documented, there are quizzes online to see if you have it. You start having anxiety, depression, irritability, feeling tired and run down, difficulty sleeping, overreacting to minor nuisances, new or worsening health problems, trouble concentrating, feeling increasingly resentful, drinking, smoking, eating more, neglecting responsibilities, and cutting back on leisure activity. And if you're still replacing all of those healthy things with more caretaking of other people, man, I'm feeling shitty. I got to get out there and take care of someone. Or I'm trying to go for a walk or go to a yoga class, but now my son's principal just called He got busted for an MIP on recess, ditching school, yelling at the teacher. I got to go pick him up in the principal's office. There goes my yoga class. I'm totally resentful. Now you've got no energy. Hmm. Now it seems like you catch every cold and flu that's going around. Now you're constantly exhausted. You neglect your own needs. Your life revolves around caregiving. You don't relax. You're increasingly impatient. You feel helpless and hopeless. And your only coping skills can look like something oh let me say extremely healthy like sitting down with four glasses of wine and binge watching game of thrones and everything gets worse and you're wondering why what you're doing is not working so how is it that being a professionally trained lifesaver a professionally trained rescuer a therapist a firefighter a doctor a nurse a paramedic a police officer You'd think you guys would know better that the first thing that you're doing is taking care of yourself. What's going on there, Stephen? How come you're picking up addicts and narcanning them so that they start breathing again and pocketing their drugs? How come you didn't know better? What is going on with you in those moments that you don't know how to take care of yourself when your job is to take care of people
1: and there you go. That's the perfect question is and that's the thing like if it was about knowing better, you know we wouldn't be having first responders and people like that losing their careers and ending up in jail or committing suicide or getting divorced or losing their kids or whatever. It's not a simple answer. It's There is no simpleness to any of this. You know, It's the grayest of the 50 shades of gray in all honesty, because there's a million roads that lead someone somewhere. And for me, I know a lot of it was the stuff that two of those stories that I told you, and there's a lot more that take me forever to tell you, but stuff that I held on to, the things we hold on to. Let me paint a picture for you. There's a psychology teacher was teaching a class at a university she walked up in front of the lecture room and she had a glass of water that was half full she held it in front of the classroom and she said what's the question class i said is the glass half empty or half full she said that's not right the proper question is how heavy is it and i said what is that supposed to mean she goes it makes no difference what's in the glass but the longer i hold on to it the heavier it becomes if i hold this glass out in front of my body for five minutes to an hour it might get my arm might get a little sore if I hold it all day, I won't be able to move my arm for the next three days. So the point is, whatever it is we hold on to, emotional pain, physical pain, logical, mental, any of those things, whatever it is that we hold on to and we don't deal with, get heavier and they weigh us down more. And we either try, we it's fight or flight. So we have to... In order to keep moving forward in some way, we have to cope with it in one way or another, and that's either dealing with it, addressing it through therapy and treatment and things like that, or we have adaptive ways to run from it.
0: When I'm doing tours and interviews with families before their kid starts to come to our facility and and we work together as a family in in a clinic, at some point I'll send the kid out of the room or I'll be with one of the parents together without the child, and I'll say, how are you doing? How's everything going? Oh, I'm a mess having sleep. And this is when the tears start. I pull out the Kleenex box. And I'm saying this because I want every parent to hear this is that when I say, How are you guys doing? How's your relationship with your ex? How's your relationship with your parenting partners? How's your relationship with each other, you married couple? I have never once heard, Oh, man, we're doing better than ever. Like the strain that it puts on everything else. In your life, to carry around the stuff that you're dealing with. To get to Obviously, we're already starting to hint at the core answer of helping someone with caretaker's burden. And then in this 19-page document about caretaker's burden, and all the symptoms, and all the criteria, and all the quiz, and everything that I have in front of me, it boils down To one thing, and it's communication. It's about learning how to kill that secret so you kill the sickness, kill the secret, kill the addiction. That trauma takes place in isolation and healing takes place in a community. And if you're still isolating as a parent, as a professional who is dealing with life and death scenarios, and whether it's your job to do that or your kid who's doing it to you, if you're doing it alone, you're on a slow march. And sometimes it's a fast march, but it's to a nice fat hole in the ground.
1: That's correct. I couldn't agree with you more on that. This thing, you know, these things, I don't want to say this because there's many of them. These things all die in the light of exposure. And that that kind of leads me to to the thought of with the program that you run for at-risk youth, I'm willing to bet that a lot of the parents that you deal with keep it very hidden from their friends, their co-workers, their family, because they're, they're embarrassed they, because they pile it onto themselves like, what you know, people are going to judge me as a bad parent because my kid is a mess. And the fact of the matter is, that is perpetuating the problem. That's not helping.
0: You and I talked um, about that at the beginning uh, when we were talking before I started recording, that as I had listened to your story on your podcast, Rescue the Rescuer, I was amazed how different we may be as human peoples and men and age and life and everything, but how at the end of the day, we got the same story. And in every parent's weekend that I run and all the coaching calls, the biggest sense of relief is the parents suddenly having their tribe. And, you know, you hear the stories and I've certainly told the stories and have the stories told to me of how firefighters, cops, and paramedics vent and debrief at the end of the day that the uh, We'll call it a sense of yeah, humor, they, I guess.
1: They, they do it They do it at the bar. Yeah. <laughs> that's, not, yeah.
0: that's not healthy because... <laughs> and, and I'm, and I'm going to call this out. It's the same kind of not healthy as going to an NA meeting and then stepping outside to smoke a cigarette and drink a monster. Like going to the bar to talk about your <laughs> yeah. problems, you know, going home to relax from your day by sitting in front of the TV to watch violence and imbibing alcohol and, and ending into a mesmerized state. That's not health. I'm not saying... Don't do it. I'm saying that, like mayonnaise, you may keep it in moderation at some point. And if you're not keeping it in moderation, you know, you may need to talk to someone because you might have an issue.
1: Yeah. Uh, again, that's it. That's it. Developing you know these healthy coping issues, but it, yeah, again, it really comes down to peeling the onion and getting to causes and conditions. Um, I'm not saying that everybody that becomes a drug addict was molested. Not saying that at all. But listen. What somebody views as traumatic to them may not be traumatic to somebody else. So someone insulting me as a child could have the same detrimental effect to me long term as another person being sexually abused. Because we're unique individuals and that we're individuals. We come into this world alone and we leave this world alone, essentially. So we're one individual. Whatever affects you may not affect me and vice versa. How we handle it, we have to get it out. We have to address it.
0: Yeah, people people um, think that trauma, that for everybody, it has to be this Big gigantic thing that happened to them that they were a, a horrible victim of a horrible situation. I've been traumatized. I was bullied. My biological father was never involved. I was sexually assaulted. There are things that other divorce will traumatize a kid. A parent applying the old things of let the baby cry in the crib could traumatize some babies and not others. People people are still missing the definition of trauma and how trauma actually can enter into the body and affect the brain and stuff like that. But to conclude her with your point, there is not a child in my facility who isn't dealing with trauma. I don't care what they did to get in here. You know, drugs, alcohol, cutting, depression, anxiety. Every single one of my kids is traumatized. We're a trauma-informed facility. And that means that we're not focusing on, oh, you know, drugs are bad. And, curry, and that's not us. What we <laughs> are is yeah. what's going on under that. How about under that? How about under that? Until we get to that thing that is at ground zero and rock bottom. That thing that said, oh, yeah, oh, this one did me in.
1: Well, yes. Well, you know, and I, I love hearing everything you just said, because it reminds me of, you know, going to the 12 step rooms. You, you have the 12 steps on the wall and they say, let's take it with alcoholism. They say, you know, I'm powerless over my alcoholism. Well, if you take the alcohol out of alcoholism, you're stuck with the ism. The ism is the I, the self and the and the me. That's what you're dealing with. The alcohol was just the aid I use the drugs, the gambling, the sex, the spending, the control, the whatever it is, whatever your thing is. That's what you're just using because because it works for right now, to not deal with the ism. The ism is the problem. The ism is the thing that has to be dealt with.
0: Right. And okay. So now, uh, now we come back around to these parents. All right. So now, now you're standing in front of a parent and the parents, they got the dark circles under their eyes, been crying all morning, didn't sleep last night. They don't know where their kid is. Kids run away. Now, third time, kids been in and out of psych units. You're counseling this parent and they're saying, no matter what I do, you know, my kid won't listen. My kid won't change. They make bad choices, stuff like that. You and I both know that this parent's a mess, that they're parenting from the worst possible place. All right. They're parenting from survival. They're parenting from frustration. And quite frankly, they're parenting from their own addictive natures, the conditioned patterns (laughs) and habits that have led them to where they are. They can blame their kid, but the kid can also blame the parent. So if we take away the blame, you're left with that thing that you keep doing that hasn't changed a damn thing. So now a parent comes to you and you finally have them convinced that they need to refocus on themselves for a minute. What is your first bit of advice for a parent, a teacher, a, th- a therapist, a firefighter, a cop, uh, a paramedic who's like, I can't get out of bed on the weekends. I sleep until my next shift and I'm, I'm having nightmares. I got PTSD. What do you tell them to do?
1: Well, one thing th- uh, I'm, I'm going to have to answer that twofold because when it comes to parent teaching them about enabling and the codependency that comes with trying to rescue their kids, because i know for me i'm a 30s i'm am in my mid 30s my parents are my dad's 72 years old and when i finally got started to get better was when they finally shut the door on me wow when they when they finally said and i'm actually tearing up i'm sure you can hear it in my voice when they finally said you can't stay here anymore because that was always my that was always my safe haven. That was always my landing ground when everything got bad or when I was in another jackpot again. It was always I can go back to mom and dad. Finally, for themselves, they changed it. They actually flipped the script and did something different because it was killing them.
0: Let me stop as you. Because you talk about shutting the door on your kid. And I'm going to tell you what 75% of the parents... Tell me, 25% of parents are saying, "Yeah, I think that's what I have left." 75% saying, "If I do, they'll die."
1: Yep, well they're going to die anyways. They're going to die anyways if you whether you're helping them or not. And by you continually opening the door and paying their bills and saving them, you're only you're helping them dig their grave. I know that's it doesn't even sound right and it sounds harsh and it sounds unfeeling, but I can tell you, I am more thankful for the fact that my, my, my family finally said no, no, because they had to do it for themselves because I was on a one-way course to hell. I was, I was into that, I was crashing into the brick wall left and right. Now I was on, I was on the, the speed express to the end and for themselves save any kind of semblance of sanity, they had to do it for them, but in doing it for them, it saved me because they changed something they par- did something different
0: you're right I tell parents I, you know it, oh, we found our kid was you know uh, sending a nude pictures of herself to boys and we you know we're telling her to stop and and I'm like okay well did that work and they go no she, she did it again I said well did you continue to pay her phone bill because you're enabling that if you well how are yes. we going to get yes. in contact with her well then you, if you really need that then you get her a phone that can't send pictures like the enabling piece goes so deep, but the advice, and I'm I'm 100% with you, the provocative question of how do you shut the door is you have to stop everything that you can find that is helping the child continue the damaging behavior. The idea that a nurse or a firefighter or a police officer or a therapist or a teacher or, God forbid, a parent is doing something that's keeping the patient sick. Well, Every single one of those, if it was discovered that they were doing that, would get fired. But the parent continues. Why? Well, just just like I was asking you, as as a paramedic, you're saving the lives and pumping the chest of people who OD'd. Didn't you know better? As a parent, you love this kid. Why would you continue to fund? Why would you buy this person who's been busted drinking in their car another car after they totaled their first one? What don't you know better? What's going on with that, Stephen? How does the rescuer? keep the patient sick
1: because it fundamentally goes down to them not them having their own stuff that they haven't dealt with yep you have to compound that with the one they're taking care of issues too Yep. So now not only do they have all these years of issues that they've buried deep, but now they've got this other person that their child or or whoever they're entrusted to take care of, they've got their issues to compound on top of it. So it is a perfect storm for the destruction of the entire unit. Yeah, it's that's really, really what I found that it comes down to is and it's so hard to say shut the door. I mean, I. I have a I have a person right now a lady that I know who's been coming to me and I've been kind of helping her along with her 30 some year old daughter. I helped her daughter get in the treatment and she you know she signed out AMA and you know did the whole game. And this wasn't her first time. The mother last week said I need to help pay for her to get into a halfway house and I'm also looking to try to get her this medication and I'm looking at the getting her electric shock therapy and I said can you stop real quick did you hear yourself I'm looking to do this, I'm looking to do that, I'm looking to do this. What is she doing? She's going out and continuing to do whatever she's doing because you're taking care of everything. You're finding all these solutions. You're finding all these answers. You're looking for zebras amongst the horses. I mean, that's a medical thing. You know, they say, you know, a lot of times the simplest answer is the correct answer. And a lot of times people start looking for these innocuous, crazy diseases or whatever that aren't really there. Because if it's a horse, it's a horse. It's not a zebra. Right. And you're looking for zebras. And I got to be honest with you, this lady hasn't spoken to me in a couple of weeks now because <laughs> I said it in a loving way. And I said, I'm always here for you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You call me, text me, anything, and I will be there. But I got to tell you that everything that you're doing is not working. It's not working. And like you just said a few minutes
0: ago, well, what if they die?
1: Well, they're going to die anyway there's a good chance they're going to die anyways. And by you changing it, you might actually save their life.
0: The best work we do as rescuers, the best work we can do as a parent is being that person who has dealt with their issues because, you know, as as you're talking and I'm picturing you, I'm I'm looking at at your picture here, your bald head and your groomed beard. I have the (laughs) same bald head. My beard is not so groomed. I'm trying to get my goatee as long as a dude from Slayer. And I'm uh. And I'm looking at you and I can imagine you, you know, pumping some some poor woman's chest or, you know, doing everything that you can do that was your job to keep that person alive. And I'm wondering, and you alluded to this, I'm wondering whose life were you really trying to save? You know, and if every relationship we are in is an opportunity to reconcile an effed up relationship that we used to be in, whether it's with our parents or our first spouse or with ourselves or whatever. But we externalize this life-saving thing. If we save our kids, it means that we're a good parent. If we don't save our kids, it means we're a bad parent. I don't think either Stephen or I are suggesting to anyone that you don't try to save your kid's life because Stephen, your job was to no matter what, do what you can to get them to those doctors so that they can get on the table within that golden hour so that We can save the life, whether the person's life had the most meaning or they were a homeless person whose meaning was lost. Your job was to get them there. And as a parent, it's no different. As a therapist, it's no different. As a teacher, it's no different. But there is a point where if you prioritize the care of them over your own personal care, you're dead. You're a dead rescuer walking every day. Before my day begins, I am up before everybody else is up and I'm taking my butt to the gym. I'm doing my meditation or affirmations. I'm doing Tai Chi. I am taking care of my health. The second thing I do is when I get back from the gym, I wake my wife up. I give her back massages right before it's shower time and it's taking care of my relationship. It's putting energy into my relationship because the rest of my day is trying to save others. And if I don't save myself, How could I possibly? I told this story to you, Stephen, before, and I want the parents, teachers, and therapists, and everybody to hear this. And I'm going to say this, and if there's paramedics listening, they know that I violated the first rule. So we roll up on a rollover. I see this upside-down vehicle. I see smoke coming out of the bottom of the car which I found out later was just the airbag smoke. But had I been really conscious, I'd have known that, but it looked like fire to me. The girl's hanging upside down in her seatbelt and I can hear her voice, help, help. The car that she hit was already on fire. The driver was safe. It was flipped upside down, Jeep driver is safe. So I start running towards the field. Yeah, and I know every paramedic is going, is the bus parked properly? No, it wasn't. I start running towards the field to go save this girl's life. And I hit a barbed wire fence that I wasn't seeing. It was there, it was perfectly clear, wasn't hidden or magical. And I hit it right below my crotch. And that fence flipped me over onto my back. The barbs dug into my legs, ripped through my pants, ripped through my skin. Now I'm bleeding, tears in my pants. So now every paramedic is saying, oh, you're bleeding. Yeah, you should go help someone else. Not only that, But as soon as I landed on my back by being flipped over this, I can't breathe, right? All the wind's knocked out of me. So what good was I? And I'm supposed to go do a spinal. What good am I for this person? So I'm going to ask the parents, are you parenting from your most powerful place as you're trying to save your kid's life? And if you're not, how you doing? How well are you going to do? When I listen to Steven's story, what I hear is I hear a man whose job it was to save lives. And he was dying the entire time. So was he the best paramedic on the bus? No. He wasn't and that's what I see you know Stephen you're the paramedic for paramedics you're the cop for cops you're the firefighter for firefighters
1: well and you know that's and that's an interesting uh, way of putting it I uh, yeah since I finally you know I had to For me, I had to experience an awful lot of pain and I don't regret any of, the only thing I regret is the pain that I caused my family, my kids, my ex-wife and her family, my other relationships that I have in my life. Those people, the pain that I caused them, if I could take one thing back, it would be that, but I would not take back the pain that I had to feel because it was the only way for me to finally be useful to actually serve the purpose that I believe I was put here to serve in the first place. And that was to take all these things that I've been through and all these experiences and bring them to others and shine a light on them and let everybody know that it's okay. It's okay. And you don't have to hide anymore. It's all right. And that's why that's why I know that I was spared. That's why I know that I survived a few overdoses. I survived the rest. I survived career loss, divorce, losing my kids for a period, losing everybody that I cared about and some of those relationships. I still struggle to keep, uh, you know, I have very, very close relationships. Like, I mean, I have a twin brother that I don't speak to, and I wish it wasn't that way. but unfortunately there, I mean, there's a lot of aspects to that. I believe that I survived all those things. For the sole purpose of taking every one of my experiences and shout them as loud as I can to the entire world, because I look at it like this, if I don't do it, who's gonna?
0: You know, earlier when you and I were, were talking, you brought up Codependence Anonymous and how powerful that's been for you, and and you even suggested that it was potentially more powerful than you going to your own meetings to deal with your your issues with drugs and alcohol, and I think. I think that's potent. Now, whether we're in a codependent meeting or an AA meeting, an Al-Anon meeting, an NA meeting, who cares? I think the key is you're meeting with other people who are suffering like you are. And that suddenly kills the fact that you're alone. You, you can't lie and say no one understands. Stephen's story yeah, and my story, th- they're so similar. You understand, Stephen. I understand. And parents think they're alone. The therapists think that no one else gets this until they start doing therapy. And then they remember, oh, yeah. We all do.
1: Well, you know, another thing that I've noticed too, especially where I live, I, I live in New Jersey. I live near Camden. I live near Philadelphia. Two of the worst, you know, the biggest open air drug markets in the world in Camden and, and Kensington, North Philadelphia. And the opiate, you know, the epidemic of, you know, the overdoses, I mean, it's, it's insane the rate that it's going. And what I've noticed is there's a lot of, when someone, when someone loses a child, they'll start a foundation, which I think is awesome. And, you know, to try to help somebody else. And I think that's very, um, I think it's, I think it's wonderful. But one thing I've noticed also is, I was at an expo a few months ago with some folks who started a foundation after their brother passed away from an overdose. And we had all these tables, and it was a big expo. The only thing that I really noticed is that the crowd that showed up were the ones that already knew the problem.
0: They were the (laughs) ones,
1: you know what? They were the ones who have already lost somebody, or they have somebody in their family, or they're that they're close to that's struggling. And I thought, well, that's cool that they're here. And they're at all these events. But what about the people who are sticking their heads in the sand? What about the people who don't understand that it's affecting everybody? It is not secluded to one group of people. It's everybody. And not just drugs, but the issues of not dealing with your issues are issues for everybody. Right. Period. End of story. You know? And I think that's part of it. That's got to change.
0: You're so dead on track with that. It's like everybody that goes to these conferences, the conference where I met Kristen Walker, the amazing goddess who runs Mental Health News Radio, right? And and where I met her and where I met Johnny Calloway, how you and I have been connected. This took place at a conference that I was lecturing at where everybody who was there were professionals in the industry. These are things we all know. And here we are all at the conference sharing our stories and sharing our love and sharing our support. And we're all taking each other's love and support and stories. But the people who really need this information, they didn't show. They don't know they need it. So how do you reach these people? How do you tell a parent, hey, you got to take care of yourself first, when quite frankly, you don't know that that parent needs to hear that. But those of us who have come back from risk, Come back from the dead, come back from zombie land. We know exactly what we need, and we spend the rest of our lives getting support, finding other people, and creating fellowship, talking with each other. You and I could both be interviewing somebody else and putting ourselves walking into some other concert and just saying, I, I, Hey, I, I know this is a Guns N' Roses concert, but everybody here who's got an issue with drugs and happens to be a professional rescuer, meet me in the back corner. We could be doing that, but we find ourselves attracted to each other because we know we need help. And the people who live, listen to your podcast people listen to my podcast they know they need help and that's that's where this starts we we start with the people who know they need something else and are looking for it how we get to the other well, that, that's the sharing right well i'll
1: tell you that's and that's one of the like you mentioned kristen walker and i have to give her a shout out too because i decided to start this podcast about six weeks ago or so and i hooked up with someone who, who's my producer out montana and i had no idea That I would wind up being picked up by, by the Mental Health Radio News Network prior to even launching because she found, you know, we connected through, you know, whatever she found me, I found her and she saw that I had a passion to do this. And what I realized, especially with like the first responder community, is that there was nobody doing it. There was nobody talking. Right. I figured I was like, man, am I the only one who overdosed and lost my career and all the and everything? Am I the only one? No, I'm definitely not the only one, but I'm go- if I, I'll be damned if I'm going to be quiet about it because there's no one else talking. There's no one else with a microphone that I know of out of the 8 billion people on this planet yet that's doing it. So I said, and this is not about me being a celebrity or making money or anything like that. This is about about me advocating. This is about you advocating. This is about every single person that is involved with this network advocating. We don't want to drive Ferraris. We don't want to have houses in the Hamptons. We want to reach people on a global level. And that is our mission. And to be aligned with something like that, I could never have orchestrated that on my own. No way.
0: Yep. I, I'm, I'm with you, man. Okay. We've, uh, we've come around to the end here. So, uh, I want to make sure, sure everybody knows how they can, uh, follow up with you, get in touch with you and pay close attention to what you're doing. Give them your call signs.
1: I would tell you, go by my name, Stephen Kavalkovich, but it took me 10 years to figure out how to spell that last name. <laughs> so, so I won't say, you know, I am on every social media channel. However, it's hard to find me that way. But you can go to rescuetherescuer.com. You can also go to the Mental Health Radio News Network, which would be NM as in Matthew, M-H-N-R, network.com. And you can find my show. I'm on iTunes. I'm on iHeartRadio. I'm on Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Business Innovators Radio Network. We're all over the place. I also have a blog at Tales from the Broadside, which is broadsidetales.com. I generally will write a post every other day or so. Those are all the places you can find me. I'm available to speak. I'm available to talk to anybody at any time for any reason. If you need help, if you feel that I can help you or you think that I might have a resource that can help you, please reach out to me. I am open to anybody and everybody.
0: Fantastic. Again, folks, rescuetherescuer.com, Stephen Kavalkovich. Fortunately, it's spelled just like it sounds, but if you're a bad <laughs> speller, uh, forget about it. And <laughs> Stephen, I'm really I'm really happy this was our first connection with each other. It's not going to be our last. I, I really appreciate what you're doing, and I uh, want to move forward together, especially since we're on the same network. So I look forward to more conversations with you and more conversations online and on air with you as well.
1: You got it. Absolutely. We're all in this together and we're a minority. We are a minority amongst a lot of people. But like Kristen says, who is affected by mental health? Everybody in the world. She says that on every show. And I couldn't agree more. So we have a lot of work to do and we're building an army and we're going to do it. We're going to take, <laughs> take a lot of heat. And that's cool because we were designed, I believe people like us were designed for that. That's what
0: yeah. we're here for. I, I agree. Dr. Drew said something a while back that I hold on to. How come addicts weren't bred out of the gene pool years ago? And it's because on the other side of recovery, we become warriors for for hope For because there's no hope in hell and addiction is hell. And we're the warriors and warriors give hope. And that's that's what this is. That's why we haven't been bred out. It's why I didn't die. That's why you didn't die, Stephen. All right. Thank you so sure. much. I want to thank Kristen Walker, my editor, Maggie Judge, everyone over there at Mental Health News Radio. Folks. Here's the mantra. You take care of yourself first. You take care of your adult relationship second. You take care of your children third. And that way we do our best work. This is Aaron Huey. If you need to look me up, look for Aaron Huey on Facebook, A-A-R-O-N. Huey, H-U-E-Y, just like the duck or whatever, the band. What Use whatever you need. Find me. Get the support. Reach out. Trauma takes place in isolation. Healing takes place in community. This has been Beyond Risk and Back. My wonderful guest, Stephen Kovalkovich from rescuetherescuer.com. Folks, I'll... See you next time. Thank you for joining us at Beyond Risk and Back. Support for parents, clinicians, and teachers. Join us at beyondriskandback.com. You can download past episodes there. Visit Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center's website for information, support, and continuing education trainings for parents and professionals at www.firemountainprograms.com. You can also connect with me directly on Facebook by searching at Beyond Risk and Back. You can also follow me on Twitter, catch me on YouTube, and join me here every week for another podcast this is Aaron Huey saying remember take care of yourself first your adult relationship second and your children third because in that way we do our best work for the children thank you for listening and we will talk again soon